Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. This morning we're going to read from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 and we'll begin in verse 1. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is a passage, at least the first half of it, that you don't see in a lot of devotionals. Because it is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But I hope perhaps that we might just understand how important this genealogy is. So we're going to take a look at it this morning together. We'll read together from Matthew chapter 1. Please stay with us. We're going to go through some names here. I doubt you would ever name your children. They're difficult to pronounce. If I get them wrong, raise your hand. I'll give you a free shot at any of them. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. I would pause there and just say that literally in the Greek, Matthew says biblos is the first word. Biblos is book. He's the only gospel writer that actually said this is a book. And he says this is the book of the Genesis or the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is a recording of that. It's important that we understand that. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, you're going to see some names of women. You never saw that in Jewish genealogies. But you're going to see it in Jesus's. But you never would see that. You, you received your legal standing through your father. But Jesus intentionally has women in his, and they are mentioned, several of them. Rahab, Boaz was their son, was the father of Obed by another woman, Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. And Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Yoram, and Yoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Yotham, and Yotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh was the father of Amnon, or Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah became the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers, at the time of the deportation of Babylon, don't forget that one. We'll come back to it. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of of Achim and Achim was the father of Eliud, and Eliud was the father of, father of Eliezer, and Eliezer was the father of Mathan, and Mathan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father 
of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, that's 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, that's another 14 generations. And if you look at the name David in the Hebrew and give each of his letters in his name the Hebrew equivalents, that equals to 14. I only say that just to let you know that we're not dealing with an accident here. God's been working through all of this. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Over 800 years prior through Isaiah, God spoke through the prophet in verse 23 and said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Don't read that part too quickly either, because by Joseph naming his son Jesus, it means that he believed God. Because the word Jesus means Yahweh saves. And he believed God. This really is a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. Fanny Crosby was born in 1820 and died in 1915, I think. At about six months of age, six months or six weeks, I can't remember exactly, but She had an eye infection, and a doctor tried some whacked-out treatment for it, and it didn't work, and it blinded her for the rest of her life. A woman who had every reason to be bitter and full of hatred all of her life, she wrote over 8,000 hymns praising our Lord and Savior. As a matter of fact, one of the things I've read about her that interests me is she had put to memory, she had a, had a goal to put to memory five full chapters of Scripture a week. I wonder sometimes, and I'm, this is not a shot across the bow, I, I guess it could be considered that, but I wonder sometimes now if all the Christian writers of Christian music that we love and sing today are doing, I don't know, five chapters a week of Scripture memory. (laughs) It'll give you a new respect for some of those old songs. One of the songs that she wrote was, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. That's probably my favorite one. We talked about this song. I looked it up in 2019 together, and It was a memorable day for me because I remember I sat over here and I played and we sang that song. And yes, I would love to be able to do that again, but right now that's not possible. If in glory we have pianos and God will allow it, (laughs) I might try it there. I miss that. 
But I can tell you, that song has lost nothing because of me. I love to tell the story or tell me the story of Jesus. I don't know of a time when the world needed to hear the story of Jesus more, nor of a time when the church needed to understand it better. I don't think there is a sin in the world more selfish than to offer validation and acceptance to those who actually need Jesus. And that is the whole foundation of woke Christianity today. Woke Christianity and those who take part in such no longer emphasize that we are depraved sinners in need of God and we are hopeless without Him. It helps people to feel okay the way they are. It would be as cruel as you knowing someone had cancer, but you got the report before they did, you destroyed it, and you intentionally let them die with a dreaded disease that there could have been a cure for. Surgery could have fixed it. They could have lived, but they died because you thought it would make them feel better and like you better if you gave them good news instead of bad. That is the lie and poison of woke Christianity today. It's like offering them a free attorney to stand before God, before them, instead of letting Jesus be their advocate. But this attorney, though he's free, he's worth every dime of it because I can tell you he will wilt before the judgment seat of God. People need to hear about Jesus. And we talked about it at a Christmas Eve service. They need to know more than Jesus loves me. That's not where the gospel begins. The gospel begins with how badly I am lost and and depraved and sinful and hopeless. And then the Jesus loves me part comes on the other end of things. But today we've gone to that end of it and just stayed there. And we tell people Jesus loves you. He loves you just as you are. And all of those things are true. But that what happens is we allow people to stay the way they are and there's no transformation in their life and they just go around and go well I've got these uh, sexual identity issues or I've got these issues with addiction or I've got these other things going on in my life and whatever it might be and our world is full of it today as a matter of fact our churches are full of it today because we are more interested in making sure people are happy and that they like us that's the most selfish part than that they become well and whole. So they just have to keep holding on to that ridiculous thing they call life, gnawing at the roots that have them bound, hoping maybe that another marriage, another job, maybe a new church, that's a popular one, or maybe geography. We just need to go somewhere else and, and just get away and, and, and start anew and all of that. And, and every one of those things fail. Because you take the problem with you until you allow Jesus to come into your heart and life and to change you forever. Man. When we looked at this in 2019, I couldn't help. I found a stat that we had put in that 70,000 people that year had died from opioid overdoses. We should update those stats to let you know how well we've handled it since then. This year, over 100,000 already have. And we have a week to go. People that are miserable. Some people say that, you know, you Christians aren't supposed to be telling people how to live their life. When I hear people say that you shouldn't tell people how to live... I disagree, and Jesus does too, so my disagree means nothing. His means everything. We should tell people how to live. Oh, I don't mean boss people around, because I didn't say we should teach them how not to live, because you can throw a bunch of rules and legalism at people, and that won't ever save them. They can keep all those rules, check all those boxes, stop all of those things, quit dating girls that chew tobacco, and all that stuff that goes on right here in the county. It's a plague. You know that. They can stop all of that and die and go to hell. That won't save them. 
We should tell people how to live. Yes, Christians should tell people how to live. I mean how to really live. How to have life. When you go to a doctor and you got a fatal disease, you want him to tell you how to live, right? Take this medicine, receive this surgery. It might be painful. It might not be what you want. It might be expensive. It might uh, put you under financially for the rest of your life. You don't care. He's telling you how to live. You can tell him to go jump in the lake. It doesn't matter. Or her. But it doesn't matter. He's telling you how to live. That's his job. We should tell people how to live. I'm not trying to boss your life around. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we should tell people how to have life and have it more abundantly through Jesus Christ. Yeah, we ought to tell people how to live. It'd be the greatest news they've ever heard. Tell me the story of Jesus. Right on my heart, every word. Tell me the story most precious sweetest that ever was heard. Well, if we're going to tell people the story of Jesus, we need to know what it is. Let's tell them, first of all, about his person. It's all here in this passage. One, he's called Jesus. We'll, we'll go through these uh, fairly quickly. Oh, we could spend a year here. But he is called Jesus. In verse 21, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That means Yahweh saves. That's not just an accident, just not one of many names that uh, Matthew decided to toss in there. Yahweh saves. Not El saves, not Elohim saves, but Yahweh saves. Yahweh was the legal name of God. It was the name, the covenant name they called it. It was the name with, it, with which you are through whom you made the covenant with God. And when the high priest would go into the temple every year or into the tabernacle before they had the permanent structure, which was the temple, when he would go into the tabernacle, he would go before God. He's the only one that would ever utter that name, but that was the name. Yahweh was the name of God through whom they had the covenant. And to find out that Yahweh saves, not just God, but Yahweh saves, that is so powerful because the covenant had not been kept and, and they were doomed forever and so are we. With, with, unless Yahweh does something, we did not keep the old covenant, but in the new covenant that we talked about at communion the other night on Christmas Eve, and we understood that in the new covenant, Jesus Christ came and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin and he kept his end of the covenant and our end of the covenant for us because we couldn't. He satisfied his own anger and rage against the sinfulness of humanity by coming and dying on the cross himself for us so we could have a relationship with him. If you can say no to that, you're a fool. I have no help for you. There is no hope. You can get a tummy tuck and it won't help you. You can get a new car, new wife, new husband, two new husbands, whatever. It won't matter. It won't matter. That is so precious. Yahweh says, his name will be called Jesus. His name will also be called Emmanuel, verse 23. Emmanuel is God with us. I know progressive theologians, liberal theologians like to doubt that Jesus was actually God. They do it very quietly and try to be respectful about it. But when you take the very foundation of Christianity and you wreck it, it's hard to be respectful and do that. You just can't do it. And, and, and when they act like, well, you know, does Jesus really, does the New Testament really say Jesus is God? 514 times the New Testament refers to Jesus Christ as the Messiah or the anointed one from God. Maybe if he had done it 515 times, that would have got you. It's amazing. 
He is God with us. Let's tell him about his person. Second Lewis, tell him about his position. He is, has come as both our priest and king. And if we went back and looked at the lineage, and uh, boy, I, we won't read that again, but I'm only good for that for about once a year. But all of those names mean something. For Jesus to be king and priest. Now, think about that. That's very odd. We only hear tell of that one time. We meet a guy in the Old Testament that is the weirdest dude in all of Scripture, I guess. There's, there's, there's more doubts, there's, there's less known about a guy named Melchizedek. He's mentioned in the New Testament as well. And it says in the New Testament that Christ, he was a priest and a king after the order of or like Melchizedek. Well, Malik, it means king. And uh, Zadik means righteous one. So he's king of righteousness. And so he is also, though, he was also the king of Salem. He is Malik Zadik. He is a righteous king. He is Jesus' king after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, It's an incredible comparison to those two. But Jesus is both king and priest. Israel had kings and Israel had priests. One of the best kings that they ever had was Uzziah. But Uzziah was struck down by God with an illness until the day he died because one day, as good a king as Uzziah was, he knew better than to do this. He went into the holy temple of God and he dared to step past the the area where he was restricted because he was king. I guess he was filled with pride. I don't know. Uh, But he went into an area of the temple that he was forbidden to go. Only the priests could go in there. The only way anyone could go in there there and be a king was to be a priest and a king and the only one to ever be able to do that is Jesus Christ now that's where these this lineage is important first of all for him to be the king of the Jews he has to be himself a Jew and when we read this this the all of these names I I understand it's it's a chore but there's something so important in that. I want to one day develop a whole sermon just on the genealogy because there are some spots in there, man, that have some great teaching for us. I, I, let's, let's look at at least one of them. There's a guy named Yekoniah. I mentioned him earlier. In verse 11, Yekoniah was... Uh, uh, had became the, or, or Josiah became the father of Yekoniah and his brothers at the time of the deportation in Babylon. Yekoniah was king of Israel, or king of Judah in the south. Nebuchadnezzar came and took them into captivity in 586. He had only ruled for three years, and Yekoniah was taken into captivity, and he stayed in captivity in jail for 37 years. It was weird back then. When they gave you a sentence of 37 years, guess how many years you stayed in jail? Yeah. It's weird nowadays, isn't it? You get two life sentences and then 10 years added on and you serve seven of them and then you get half of them all for good behavior. Nobody ever knows what that means anymore. (laughs) Back then they knew what it meant. 37 years, actually he was sentenced for life. But Nebuchadnezzar died and Eval Merodach, his son... Another name you might want to consider for your next baby. Eval Merodach was his son. And Eval Merodach, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, set Yekoniah free. But God had told Jeremiah. He said, I want him to get out of this, out of here. He's taken into captivity. He said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, Jeremiah. He's like a signet ring and I am pulling him off of my finger." A signet ring was a ring that represented power and authority. He has no longer any power and authority for me to be king. And he said, as a matter of fact, while you're at it, he will be cursed and no one from his lineage shall ever 
be king of Israel. His biggest sin was, or the thing that really got him in the biggest trouble with God, was when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem to overtake the place he gave it to him. He didn't stand up and fight. He was a a pacifist. He would fit in rather well with a lot of people nowadays. He, I guess he thought, well, we want to be peaceful and good folks. And boy, God just really got ripped at him for that and cursed his generation. Now, that's a problem because Yekaniah is in the bloodline with Jesus. And so if Jesus is going to be king, how's he going to do it if there is a break in that chain. Now, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds, not because you can't understand it, but because I'm not smart enough to keep it all straight. There's a lot going on with all of this. So let me simplify as best I can. There's another lineage we are given of Jesus, and it's in Luke. Luke gives us the lineage of Jesus' mother. Matthew gives us the lineage of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, okay? If you look in the Gospels, they all start Jesus' life in different places. Mark was the first Gospel written. He goes back to Jesus' baptism. Uh, Matthew was the second Gospel written. He goes back to Abraham. Luke was the next gospel written, and he goes back in his genealogy to Adam. And John was the last gospel written, and he goes all the way back to in the beginning. Luke goes back all the way to Adam. He does it in reverse. And when he gets to David, he veers off. Where Matthew said David, through Bathsheba gave birth to Solomon, and it was through Solomon's line that Joseph was born. When Luke gives Mary's genealogy, he gets to David and says it was through David's other son, Nathan, that Mary was born, and Jacobniah is not in that line. I say all of that to simply tell you this. His royal ancestry came through his mother. His legal ancestry had to come through his father. Joseph made him a Jew. And Mary's ancestry qualified him to be king. Now, we could say, well, he's God. He don't have to play by those rules. I understand that. But he's true to his nature. God's not just some witch doctor up there monkeying around with the levers. He is true to his nature. And what I really want you to see, I know you may not remember any of those names till you get home today. That's fine. I don't care. That's not my point. Here's my point. God was at work a long time ago and through a whole lot of people and through a ton of different circumstances to make all of this happen for us that we celebrated yesterday. He's not to be outdone. Even the wicked ones cannot stop him. He's awesome. Yeah. Hallelujah. Well, he is both king and priest. We also need to tell him not only about his person. We need to tell people the story of Jesus about this position that he has as king and priest. Also, we ought to tell folks about his people. I think this one will help them more than anything. Some of them were sinful offenders, we'll call them. And I'm not talking about Rahab the harlot yet. I'm talking about Abraham. Abraham, God promised him a son. And Abraham, uh, you won't believe this. He was impatient, men. Imagine that, Howie. He was impatient. He said, God, you're taking a long time. Boy, this is when we always get in trouble. If you want to know when the ceiling's about to come down, when us men get in our mind, God's taking a little too long. I think he needs some help. And we start to take that step. Boy, you can almost hear the dynamite fuse winding down. 
We are about to mess up life when we do that. Oh, yeah. He has a son with Hagar, his handmaiden. That's not the son God wanted him to have. You remember his name? Ishmael. And Ishmael was the father of the Arabs. And one day after Isaac, the son of promise, was born, Isaac and Ishmael, they were there in the kitchen running around. It says kitchen in the Hebrew. Uh, I don't know where they were, but they were getting in a fight, and it's time to separate them two. And so Sarah sent Hagar and Ishmael out. I want to tell you, those two squabbling in the floor that day is still going on in the newspaper today. Because Ishmael is a father of the Arabs. And that's a little spat that they've never gotten over. All because Abraham had to help God. Wow, he doesn't need our help. There's others like Isaac. Abraham lied about his wife. Said she was his sister. To protect his own life. Now, where in the world did Isaac get an idea like that? Uh, from his daddy, Abraham. Because there was another time God needed help protecting Abraham from the king of Egypt. And Abraham come up with a stem-winding plan. Got him in trouble again. We could talk about Jacob. Man, awesome story. Isaac's son Jacob. Oh, you remember he was brothers with Esau. Esau was a big old brute guy. He was his name means red, and it uh, it, it it had to have been where we got redneck from. I know it came from Kentucky during the coal mining uh, days with the working unions and all that. I got all that. But I, I'm just telling you, he was, Esau was from Hehaw. He was born first, but he gave up all kinds of things, precious things, his birthright and his blessing and all of that because he was so ignorant because he was led by his appetites and he gave up things that he could never ever replace for things that would never ever satisfy. Well, Jacob has the birthright now. Jacob has the blessing of the father, but boy Jacob, he is now he's different. He was a mama's boy. He was a swindler. His name actually means heel grabber. He could trip you up. He's the kind of guy that could go in a revolving door behind you and come out in front of you with your wallet. And he did. Remember his father-in-law, Laban, thought, ah, I'll pull one on him. I'll make him work for this sister for a while. And if he works seven years for that one, then he says, no, nah, I'm going to make you work seven more years. And all of that, he was just pulling fast ones on him. And then he finally gave him the wrong one. And then one day Laban looks around and realizes, you know what that little cuss did? He not only left with both girls, he left with everything else I own. That's how Jacob could do you. Professional swindler. And then, of course, you know the story. He's out about to go into the land of Canaan. He gets word that, hey, guess who's coming to see you? Esau. He hadn't seen Esau in 20 years. And he's got 400 men with him. He must really be excited to see you, Jacob. And boy, I promise you the color went out of his face. Because he knew if that gorilla gets a hold of me, he will pull me from limb to limb. I treated him like dirt, and man, he is going to rip me apart and I know it. And you remember Jacob, boy, he was such a fool. He split his family up into two groups. So if Esau came and killed one group, he might, let, might not think there was any more of them and the other half of his family could survive. How stupid. Jacob is out there wandering around in the middle of the night in the dark and all of a sudden, I mean, just think of the demeanor he's got right now. All of a sudden, a guy jumps up and grabs him from behind and takes him to the ground. I wonder if his heart didn't nearly stop. Of course, you know the story. I've got to move on, but he was wrestling with the angel of the Lord. 
And when Jacob realized it, he'd had enough. And he said, I won't let you go until you bless me. I want something, God, that only you can give me. I've gotten everything else in life by lying and swindling and cheating. And I'm the richest man in town. But I realize I have nothing of any real value. And God asked him a question. He said, what is your name? It wasn't like he forgot. He said, my name's Jacob. You know my name, God. My name means swindler, conniver, liar, cheater. He says, your name will no longer be that. But your name will be Israel. God had changed his life. Now, he did dislocate his hip. The old saying is, you walk different after you've wrestled with God. And you do. We need to tell him about his people. Also, some were not only just sinful offenders, others were social outcasts. Social outcasts. I mentioned that there were women in this lineage, Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And she married one of Judah's sons, and he died. She married another one of his sons named Onan, and uh, the first one was named Ur, I believe. The second was named Onan, and he died. And so instead of letting her marry his third son, Judah wouldn't allow it. And you remember the story if you've ever read it. If you hadn't, you ought to go read it. It's an awesome story in the book of Genesis. But she was more concerned about the bloodline continuing on than Judah was. And so she knew he was going to the sheep shearing convention, which was like the county fair. She went dressed up like a harlot on the side of the road, lured her father-in-law into being with her, and she became pregnant. Well, Judah being the hypocrite he was, when word got out that she was pregnant, he said, bring her out here and let's set her on fire and burn her. She's nothing but a slut. Problem was, before Judah left her that night, she took his bracelets and his ring, I think, and his staff. She brought them with her to the burning. Okay? She said, "Uh, Judah, before you light the match, I'm going to give these back to you. Because you're the reason I'm pregnant. Speaking of the color going out of your face. (laughs) The bloodline came through her. An incestuous, godless affair. Rahab the harlot. Uh, Yeah, she was there when the, the spies went in to spy out Jericho and she hid them and protected them and kept them alive. And then she also made a confession to God that she said, look, we know your God. I know that the God of Israel is the only God that there is. And because of that confession, she became part of the people of God. And she married Salmon and she and Salmon had a young man named Boaz and Boaz had Obed and Obed had Jesse and Jesse had Solomon, and we've already talked about that. But she will always be known as Rahab the what? Rahab the harlot. She had lived that way so long it had become who she was. Man, that is such a sad state. But I want to tell you, I didn't notice in this uh, lineage of Jesus that they called her Rahab the harlot. Because to God, she was not a harlot anymore. She was one of his precious children. See, the world needs to hear about these people. There's a lot of them that don't even feel worthy to walk in this church, and they don't realize, well, we got a bunch of offenders in here just like Abraham and Isaac and all of that crowd. And I don't care how bad they've lived, what they've done in their life, they need to hear the story of Jesus, that in his very lineage, some of the most suspect characters in the world were part of that. But he is already transforming lives before he is even born in the flesh on this earth. That's the power of reading all those crazy names. Man, Ruth was another one. She married Boaz. Boaz, he's not a, 
Israelite, and Ruth was a Moabite, and she came from a cursed group of people, and they had been cursed for ten generations by God. But when Elimelech and Naomi wandered out of Bethlehem and took their sons, Malon and Kilion, with them, they married Ruth and Orpah, and and, uh, Ruth and Orpah lived, and Malon and Kilion died, Elimelech died, and that left uh, Naomi with her two daughters-in-laws, and and, and of course, uh, she's going to go back to Bethlehem, and Ruth says, I'm going with you. She talked Orpah out of it, and Ruth went with her. So here's Ruth. She's a cursed Moabite. She marries a another non-Israelite named Boaz. And the rest is history. But beautiful history. Bathsheba. She's in the bloodline with Jesus Christ as well. Had one son by David and that died. She was married to Uriah, but Uriah was not Uriah the Israelite. He was Uriah the Hittite. So she was not even a Jew herself. She wasn't a Jew. Her husband wasn't a Jew, but he was what we call a Yahwehist. He believed in Yahweh, even though he was not a Jew. And he was a powerful man in David's army. And, of course, you know the story. David slept with his wife, had him killed to try to cover it all up. It was a terrible, terrible thing. Finally, we come to Mary. Mary seems to be a fine woman, but that's what she is, just a human being. Just a human being, friend. Oh, I know the... Catholic Church has come up with this business called theotokos. That's a word for bearer of God. They made a big deal out of Mary. I have one last point, so I'm just saying that so you don't leave before I get to it. Because I, I am going to try to wrap it up. If you knew how much I did have to talk about. Theotokos meant bearer of God. Catholic Church bestowed a lot of honor and what they call veneration of Mary. They say we don't worship Mary. We venerate her. Well, you can't spit and hit the difference between venerate and worship. They made up all kinds of lies about Mary that are not true. The assumption of Mary that she just rose bodily and went to heaven. It's not true. But one of the things that they bestowed upon her was the name bearer of God. She is the mother of God. And they do pray to her. And they do worship her. No doubt about it. But what I wanted to tell you is this. When Catholicism began to permeate the church, you got to realize Christianity may have been the only religion in the whole world that did not have a female deity. All of the others had female deities. Christianity finally got them one. Man, (laughs) when the Romans made Christianity a legal religion under Constantine, and Theodosius made it, a later emperor made it the official religion of the Roman Empire, man, he turned Christianity Christianity folded. I mean, it didn't fight it. It folded like a cheap lawn chair. It just bought right into all of the paganism on the other side of the empire. They have female deities. We want us one. And they made Mary one is what they did. They made her a female deity, basically. It's incredible what happened. Well, we need to tell people story of Jesus. The real story of Jesus. And last of all, tell them about his person, his position. Tell them about his people. I think it's so sad that there are a lot of folks in the world. I think it's good that they feel unworthy to approach God. They should. But I think it's sad that we've not gotten to them yet, a lot of them, and told them that you will never be worthy. You come just as you are. He doesn't accept you just as you are. 
He will transform your life. He loves you and cares about you. He won't leave you just as you are. He won't affirm you just as you are. He won't validate you just as you are. He will change who you are. Wow. They need to hear about Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Last of all, we need to tell them about his purpose. We'll close with this. Verse 21 says, He came to save his people from their sins. That's why he came. I know he fed folks who were hungry. But there's nobody in the history of the world that left more hungry people standing around that he could have fed but didn't than Jesus. Matter of fact, just think about this. What if Jesus, because if you've if you ever been to Palestine, some of you have, I know. If they've got one thing, they've got rocks. If you ever wonder why, every time they get in a war, they throw rocks. Well, they got more of them than we got bullets. They got them everywhere. What if Jesus had done something like, I mean, these people are impoverished. Instead of dying on the cross and all of that, there was another way to do it. In other words, instead of getting his glory through dying on the cross, what, what if, just, 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 let me just throw this out there to you. What if he'd have took those stones and turned them into bread? Oh, that's right. I should have footnoted him, shouldn't I? Because Satan had already thought of that idea. Why don't you open up the biggest soup kitchen in all of Jerusalem? That's basically what Jesus has been reduced to in woke Christianity today. He came to just feed and to heal, and he did a lot of that. But in John 6, after he had fed the multitudes bread, they came back for more. And he said, I want to give you a different kind of bread. And they might have been thinking, all right, cool. Think he's going gluten-free this time. Or whole wheat. No, he said, this is not like that bread. The bread you got the first time is just like the bread your fathers ate in the wilderness and died. But the bread I want to give you is the bread of life. And he that eats it will live forever whole multitude said no and they left and if you think Jesus was going to try to put lipstick on that pig he turned and looked at his disciples and said do you want to leave too looks like it's a good time because I didn't come here to meet that temporal need and to let people focus on that temporal need to the point that they neglect their eternal need. Does that mean we shouldn't feed the hungry? No. Am I saying that? Absolutely not. But I can tell you what they need more than bread, more than firewood, more than oil in the tank, more than the power turned back on, more than all of those things. They need to be told the story of Jesus real story Jesus because if they starve to death but know him they will live eternally with him in glory but if they die in a mansion and they don't know him then they'll live eternally without him in hell tell me the story of Jesus write on my heart every word she said Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. That's a sweet story, man. Let's pray.
God, I pray right now that if there's somebody sitting here that, Lord, maybe for the first time, the story about you finally gripped their heart, awakened their mind, and more than that, convicted them, deepened their soul that they need a Savior. I pray you'd help that person right now to just cry out to you. Whether they whisper it or speak it silently, however they do it, God, whether they stand and scream to the top of their lungs, I pray, God, they wouldn't leave here today until they allow you to become their Savior. Lord, I pray that you would just help them right now. There, there may be a thousand other things they don't understand. Maybe they heard a lot of things today that bewildered them, but Lord, they heard something today that convicted them, something today that hooked right up to them, something today that matched their world so closely it almost scared them, God. They never dreamed they was going to walk in a church here in North Carolina today on day after Christmas 2021 and you were going to speak to their heart like you did. I pray, God, right now, they'd cry out for your salvation. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, we're about to begin a new year, and I pray that you would impress upon us more than ever. We need to tell the story of you. I pray, God, that you'll help us with that. I pray, God, that you will help us as this new year begins to have revival in our hearts, that we would make it a priority, God, to come together and, and to pray for this sin-sick world and the lost in this world and for healing for those, God, that need to be saved. I pray, God, that we would come together and be discipled more than ever, Father. I pray that you would help us to not just come here and be disciple, but to disciple others in other places, in our homes or wherever it might be, God, I pray. You would quicken our hearts to what you've called us to do. Help us to tell people how to live, God. How to really live. I pray you'd help us with that, Lord. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father all of your blessings, but most especially we thank you for being Emmanuel, for coming, coming to us when we could not come to you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.